Welcome to FinTech Family Hour. This is Zach Anderson Pettit, Content Director at Money 2020 by Day and your host by night. This week, we have the beginning of something special. I ventured out to DC recently and had the chance to sit down with Anthony Semino, Head of Policy at Carta. This episode is a little outside of our normal wheelhouse, and that's on purpose. I'm trying to learn. It's crazy, right? Ownership and the ability to be an owner is absolutely critical in our economy, as you know. Lots of policy has been developed to make ownership easier in recent years, but there's a potential rulemaking coming down the pike that could hinder that progress. Actually, a number of rulemakings. It's a whole thing. This won't be the last episode we do on this subject with Carta. This won't be the last episode in general that we do with Carta. Not sure exactly how it's going to look yet, but this subject has become important to me the more I've dug into it and the more that Anthony educated me on it. And I can't pass up a chance to continue to learn from Carta's policy team and from Anthony. So more to come. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by FS Vector, the firm for innovative financial services. And without further ado, here's Anthony. thing that tends to happen in the world of podcasting where you uh, sit down with somebody that you haven't met before in person and you start talking like normal humans. Mm-hmm. And then you get into the shit where you're like, oh my God, I wish I had pressed record about that previous paragraph that you just said. So we won't go directly back to that, but let's let's just jump in before we keep talking about interesting shit that the audience should hear. So yeah, stop being interesting off <laughs> off my company. Yeah, exactly. You're not allowed to be interesting unless we're recording. So let's start with who are you? What do you say you do here? We were one of the other things we were talking about is I think most people know that Carta is doing policy work, but mm-hmm. maybe not everybody knows where that focuses. And also the SEC and a lot of people's brains right now just connotates Gary Gensler memes and crypto oriented things. So apparently the SEC is doing other stuff that maybe matters in today's economy. So Start us there. Well, we'll cover it all, uh, but thanks so much for having me. Really excited. My name is Anthony Semino. I do go by Anthony, uh, and I lead the public policy team here at Carta. Uh, and as background, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware of Carta, but we do really fancy ourselves as the infrastructure for innovators. And we really try and help growth stage companies and their investors issue equity, value equity, transact that equity, and ultimately with the goal of creating more owners and making that ownership meaningful. So today we've got around 35,000 companies or so that we actively manage their cap table and valuation services for and around 6,000 fund vehicles. And so we've really got a lot of connective tissue within that innovation economy. And it's coming up on four years, but four years ago, Carter reached out to me to build out a public policy team. And it wasn't to help Carter specifically, but how do we help that ecosystem? And so what we've tried to do is really bridge and serve as a connective tissue between that innovation ecosystem and the policymaking universe. And so what does that mean? Well, when we think about public policy, we want to use it to expand ownership and lower barriers to entry and expand access, whether that's for investors, employee owners, or founders building companies, firms investing capital. And so what we want to do is help them understand what's at play in the regulatory environment, how that's changing and helping them navigate it, and then work with them in ways that we can identify friction points and opportunities and communicate those to policymakers to ultimately facilitate a policy environment that supports innovation. Because to us, 
Policy is infrastructure. It affects so much of everyone's day-to-day, whether you realize it or not. We need to make sure that infrastructure facilitates information, doesn't stifle it. This is a total aside, and I was not thinking about it before, but the way that you just phrased that kind of makes me think... when you said I was not necessarily brought in for Carta specifically, like obviously you were, but I get what you mean. And it almost takes me to this place of like, is there some, this is a very, this is very philosophical, but is there some piece of the world of policy inside of FinTech or inside of, I think inside of FinTech specifically, that is almost like the philanthropic arm. Like, is it almost something that you are doing for, I mean, maybe that's a little too extreme and too much like, you know, the charity thing, but is it to some degree something that is really being done for the industry, not just for Carta? I mean, you just said that, but lean into yeah. it more. I'm curious. Yeah, to, to sharpen that point up, we're very fortunate. We've got a long-term view of so much of Carta and the marketplace. And our CEO wanted to invest in this because if we can build the right policy infrastructure, it can support that entire, it can support that entire economy. And although that sounds selfless, For the most part, Carta is so much of the infrastructure that as that economy grows, that ultimately does benefit Carta. Is it an absolute one-for-one? Perhaps not. But when we support a founder when they're launching a company or raising money or a first-time fund manager as they're raising capital or how they're deploying that capital, when we create a positive policy environment that helps them build, ideally, they're doing that on Carta. And ideally, that's accruing not only to the innovation economy, but to Carta. So I wouldn't say it's philanthropic, but it isn't a situation where our CEO is asking us, like, can you help me save on this tax provision? It's how do we support our customers and potential customers to help them build what they're trying to build? Yeah. And it sounds directionally aligned in like the improvement of the world too, right? Like it's it's not like, let's make sure, because you're not the only, like, there are other pieces of software to manage cap tables. They don't work as well. Obviously, they are not Carta, but like there are other pieces and you're not saying like, well, let's build something that only benefits us. You're saying let's benefit. Let's build something that benefits the VC ecosystem, that benefits entrepreneurs, the benefit like let's help the world improve and make building shit easier. 100%. And I would say the areas that we've been incredibly successful have been when we're not only working with our customers to identify friction points and opportunities to help them build, but then working with them as well as what we'd call coalition partners. And those might be law firm partners, auditing firms, or they might be outright competitors. But what we're trying to do is solve a policy issue and then help people, whether they're competing against each other or building together, navigate on the business practices versus having to navigate a policy constraint. So it's not a Carter specific motion in many cases, it's a industry-wide motion. And we try and work with our partners as a result. Makes a ton of sense. Okay. So you were brought in four years ago to build this team. Tell me about those four years since. What has kind of unfolded? What have things been like? And then we'll we'll spend a lot of time on today, but give us kind of what that was like building the team and all that. It's been a incredible time because this is a company that, as I mentioned, sees long-term. But when we walked in the door, it was right on the start of COVID and nobody could have anticipated that. I think the entire industry reacted in that first quarter or two when the pandemic started with the real expectation the economy would contract. And so a lot of what we were doing day to day was helping companies navigate everything from COVID relief packages to tax credits they might be able to take advantage of. So it was very customer centric on a tactical motion. As that started to smooth out, we were able to take a step back and really start building the team that we wanted here. And so we think about that of 
going back to those foundational goals of creating more owners, expanding access, and lowering barriers to entry, in many cases, that revolves around a couple of key areas that go industry-wide. One is capital formation. And specifically, that's around a lot of the SEC rulemakings, which I know we'll talk about shortly. And the other is tax. And how do we incentivize capital going into this ecosystem? And we candidly have had to play far more defense than I would like to. But this is where I think Carta was really able to solidify its position, where early on, we saw Congress actually seek to curtail something that called the qualified small business stock, which to us is a tax incentive that drives talent and capital to startups by providing advantageous tax treatment for long-term holders, whether those are employees or investors in early stage companies. And they were trying to curtail that. We fought building a coalition and defending it against it. And so we've had to have a lot of these defensive fires. And what we're trying to do now is really start making the case again offensively as to why we need to be building the startup economy again, because that to us is the innovation engine. And so it's been a whirlwind between COVID, building the team out, and now that we're in a little bit of a contraction as we're seeing the data, it's still an opportunity that's making this job even more important than ever to make sure that we've got policy driving capital and talent to the ecosystem. So I, th- I think there's a, a piece in there when it comes to the formation of capital specifically that I think is interesting. I think a lot of people go into the the formation of capital piece and say that the SEC is trying to protect, you know, low, not low income, probably if you're, hopefully if you're low income, you're not, you know, doing anything on Robinhood. But then again, we know that you are. Um, But when it comes to non-accredited investors or what we would have previously looked at as non-accredited investors, and they're trying to protect them or something like that, right? And it kind of comes back to the question around the defensive nature, right? Mm-hmm. You were talking about how you spent a lot of time kind of in the defensive spot, the defensive posture. How much of that comes back to like average American perception of tech and how much of that comes back to actual things in the legislation or in the policy that are incorrect? Like to me, it seems like we a lot of what you're dealing with or a lot of what you're reacting to or being defensive to is misperception from average Americans that don't maybe don't totally understand the Mm. nuances of this? Like how much of that is your life? So if I'm understanding your question, um, I think it's a little bit of both. And one, spending my life in public policy, I always do try and assume positive intent from policymakers. I think most of them are making a huge sacrifice and trying to do the best And in some cases with very hard or impossible decisions. And I think what we're seeing from the SEC, to your point, is how they think about protecting investors. What I worry about is the current lens under this SEC is it's investor protection through investor preclusion. And so what do I mean by that? Private markets have grown substantially over the last decade or so to the point where almost every year you're seeing more money raised in private markets than in public markets. And what I think that speaks to is companies that do go public do so later in their life cycle if they go public at all. And as a result, a lot of that growth that investors can benefit from happens in private markets. To access private markets, you typically have to be considered an accredited investor. And to become an accredited investor, it's largely a financial threshold of wealth and income. Now, what we've seen over the past decade or so is as this market's grown, that's reinforced a situation where 
wealthy folks have access to growth investments that make them wealthier. And those that don't qualify as an accredited investor, that don't have the financial wherewithal, lack that access. And as a result, if they are fortunate enough to have disposable income, they might benefit from public markets, but they don't have the diversity. They don't tend to have the growth trajectory you can see in private markets. And so they are left behind. And that increases the income inequality we've seen on the wage side, but also increasingly on the equity ownership side. And so what we are trying to do is expand on-ramps to become accredited investors. And as a result, access private markets. Now we are, we've seen some loosening from the SEC under the prior administration on this. I think that there's areas to go further, but under this SEC, as I mentioned, they're actually doing more to raise barriers to investors because I think they see the private markets as a little bit riskier relative to public markets. And as a result, they don't want investors accessing them. And what I worry is that that just continues to exacerbate that cycle, when in reality, I think there's ways to create constructive on-ramps to help average Americans get access to these markets in effective and structured ways. Gotcha. Okay. So what you're saying is another example, basically, of Washington staying in a period of time that maybe doesn't reflect reality a little bit, right? Like talking about Stripe as an example, was a $100 billion company, now is 50, whatever, in like a decade ago, that would have been a public company, no brainer. 20 years ago, that would have been like the one of the largest public companies, you know, but we're not changing the rules to reflect the fact that Stripe is still just Stripe and still just private and still just sitting over there. So that's kind of what you're saying is it's another, it's the reality is not reflecting policy sort of thing. Well, I think, I think that's yes, but Mm -hmm. what I worry is that we are potentially changing the wrong rules. Okay. Because I think to your point, they're seeing private markets grow and policymakers are leery of that. They think that there is a opacity to them. Yeah. There's a lack of information. There's a lack of liquidity. And so what they want to do is, I think, restrict investor access, put additional requirements on private companies that would impose more transparency and compliance obligations, and ultimately push more of those private companies public. So what I think that they're trying to do is adjust the rule set that doesn't help uh, investors get access to private markets, but to push private companies public faster, at which point retail investors could get access. But for us, we don't believe that companies should be making a decision to go public based on a regulatory constraint so much as when it's appropriate for the business. Because we've seen countless times when a company goes public before it's ready, whether that's through a direct listing, a SPAC, or a traditional IPO, If it is not ready for public markets, many times the retail investors that now have access to it end up holding the bag as that share starts trading lower. It then also leads to a situation where that company becomes thinly traded. So that liquidity that public public markets can offer isn't actually there. And it ultimately puts quarterly level pressure on companies that might not be built for it. So what we want to do is make sure companies go public when it's appropriate for them, not when they hit an arbitrary regulatory constraint, which we think ultimately leads to bad outcomes for investors that would have access to those companies in public markets anyway. I mean, it makes a shit ton of sense. Like you look at, have you followed this better mortgage spec at all? I, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm expert on it, but yes, well, I, yeah. me neither, yeah. I just, but it's a stock, it's a chart that is hard to watch. Yes. And if you think about the impact of, if I were to be very excited about better mortgage as a, you know, my mom or something like that, plow into that and then watch it go from what was it, like a $4 billion company at the beginning of the day, it was like a $19.6 million company yeah. by the end of the week. Like there's something to be said for it. And that's the other side, right? It's like there is, there is something to be said for protecting 
the average American, I mm-hmm. think. But there's just so many fucking ways that they can shoot themselves in the foot already that like it's such a bizarre place to try and put on training wheels or yeah. like barrier. Like it's just a bizarre. It just truly confuses me, which brings me to maybe the next point, which you were kind of starting to get into before we were recording and you were talking about a number of different rules that they're putting into place. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it makes sense to go there next. And one of those places we were talking about like a lower barrier to lawsuits. Um, one of the things I thought was like, maybe we should actually pause on this piece. What was the prohibition of side letters? Like, why would you prohibit a side letter? It, like it's inherently seems like it is trying to, decrease the creativity and deal making, which I guess I can see some reasoning for, but it just seems like it's like taking tools out of people's toolboxes on purpose. Yeah. So what what you're referring to is a recent proposal and now final rule by the SEC, which is referred to as a private fund advisor rule. And this goes back to that point I made earlier about the SEC trying to drive more transparency and frankly, insights into private markets for both regulators as well as investors. Well, let's yeah. pause there real quick. If you just take that at face value, that's fair, right? Like post FTX, post like, I mean, then again, if you look at, I mean, Enron was public. So what are you going to do? But um, I'm really glad you made that point. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but it's a, it's a fair, it's a fair statement from a main street perspective, I think to say that, but there are real impacts from the other side, I think. So paint the other side of the picture. And and, well, a couple of things. One, FTX was fraud and in private and in public markets, frauds happen and in no place are they protected. You mean, you mean the SEC rules pushing in the direction of transparency? You're saying that SBF would have found a creative way around those as well, probably. That would be my guess. Um, (laughs) That's wild. But I think it speaks to like that's that's a different problem than what we're trying to solve for here. And then I think to your point, when you make the rhetorical arguments as to what they're trying to achieve, those are not only fair, but I think those are laudable goals. And that's why I always start with what are they trying to solve for, and how do we read the best of intent? But in reality, how do we also see how this is operationalized, and what are the consequences? potentially intended, potentially unintended. And so the private fund advisor rule has been watered down a bit from its proposed version, but it's still very much a shift in the SEC's posture from the current rulemaking framework to what it will be once this goes active. And it was proposed final two Wednesdays ago. And so there's an implementation date. But I think there's a couple of things to note here. One, it will apply to both registered investment advisors. And so picture your fund manager of a fund that is probably larger and or is investing in things that are not purely venture. So if you've got a huge amount of crypto holdings, you would potentially be a registered investment advisor or something like that. But then there would also be changes for all investment advisors, including venture advisors, your first-time fund managers, and your emerging managers. And so we'll come back to that in a moment. And that's where we're going to get the side letter piece. But for the registered investment advisors, it is going to require standardized disclosures on a quarterly basis for things like performance fees and expenses. So that's where we're getting at transparency. And that's not required as of right now. Not required as of right now. But I think what's important is that in most cases, funds are giving their LPs and investors this information. Mm-hmm. What we're going to see the SEC likely do is standardize it in a way that may or may not be appropriate. We don't know exactly yeah. how it's going to be operationalized. But what we want to make sure is that these comparisons for companies that are going to have to start, they're not going to have to, but funds are going to need these companies to start performing. Per, providing that performance information, 
is that done in a way that's effective? Is that done in a way that's not an apples to apples comparison all the time? Or how does it fit into a one size fits all standardization box? Yeah, that seems unlikely that that's actually going to work correctly, but carry on. So so there's that. <laughs> um, and there's like annual audits they're going to be subject to. And then there's some second GP led secondary constraints. And we can dive deeper into that. But I think the more critical point is the one you're making. And this is going to apply to all fund advisors. And that is what they want to do is really drive more transparency into side letters or these bespoke agreements that a GP might have with an LP to land that investment. And we often see that through preferential treatment and side letters, through information rights, potential economic benefits, lower fees, et cetera. Talk, talk me. Th- so, I mean, I don't, I'm not an LP. I'm not at a point where I, I hope to be one day. Um, but talk me through like an, an example of that. Like I'm an LP, I'm coming to you. I want to invest, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm, uh, I don't know, Larry Ellison's second cousin. So I have all of the, I don't know, I have all of the leverage for some reason. And I want to write in that I would like you to cut off your third toe in order to take my money. Like basically you would just say, okay, I'll cut off my third toe. We'll put it in a side letter. I don't need all my investors to cut off their third toe. Only, only, we'll only do this for you. Um, and then we carry on. That's that straightforward. Well, at some point you run out of third toes, so you can only do that potentially with two LPs. But I think, so what you often see in these are information rights insofar as the types of information a fund- Like literally data sharing? Um, Just insofar as like how companies are doing, because what can happen is you ultimately have some of these LPs potentially involved in investment decisions. And so similar to, for lack of a better construct, like a board level uh, for a company, some of those folks might be involved in some decision-making. And so they would need access to different information than your average investor might. Yeah. Where this is particularly important is for an established fund, they probably already have an LP network. And when Mm -hmm. they want to raise a new fund, if they've performed well, they've got folks they can go to, they can potentially raise money, or they can do so fairly effectively. Where we're really worried about is for emerging fund managers who might not have that track record. And in order to really pull that money in for the fundraise, they often need to attract a very credible LP. Mm-hmm. And to do and that, that takes a fucking side letter for the most yeah. part. Yeah. yeah okay. And in I'm many with cases, you. that's, I don't want to say standard practice, but a lot of LPs do have kind of a standardized expectation okay. around that. And what the SEC is doing with the best of intent, I think in their mind of like trying to make sure there's more transparency around is basically prohibiting that unless it's disclosed, unless it's disclosed and in many cases, those terms that would be economically advantageous are provided to everybody. Which at that stage means it's not a preferential treatment. Right, what? And it's not really a side letter. Now, I think operationally, we still need to figure out what this looks like, but I think it will narrow the side letter ability. I think for the CalPERS of the world versus you know the Mies of the world, sure. CalPERS will still probably get advantageous treatment in some form or fashion. And I will just know that that's happening. It'll be more transparent. Yeah, because the world works the way the world works. (laughs) But if there's an outright expectation that everybody gets the same benefit there, we could see this, and I worry you do see this, really harm the emerging managers. And we're already seeing outside of the regulatory environment, a lot of LPs retract and go back to those more established funds with performance records when the economy itself is tightening. And the last thing we want to do is reinforce that and make it harder for emerging managers to raise capital and importantly, deploy capital beyond those traditional markets like San Francisco and New York. Yeah. We want emerging managers in Atlanta, in Austin, in Detroit, driving capital to those entrepreneurs in those ecosystems. So 
I have a little bit of a what the first startup that I worked in, um, well, actually while I was in college was a robo advisor mm-hmm. and we were an RIA. And that's I think why my brain is struggling a little bit and how much we're talking about venture. Like, of course, venture investors are investors, obviously. And of course, everything we're talking about kind of is in this like Venn diagram of all of it. But I can't help it in the back of my head wonder like the the RIA that I worked for was a, it was a robo advisor that was an RIA functioning on held away 401k accounts. Mm-hmm. Right. So we were ma- basically like uh, financial engines, but could function on any any 401k account. I'm trying to think about how this would impact, like, would this impact a robo advisor? Would this impact just an RIA in Kansas City? You know, like we have some of like the largest, like just brick and mortar RIAs. Mm-hmm. Would it impact like the retirement, like wealth management aspect at all too? So, and I think that's the important point here is we focus on it from a venture perspective, but you're seeing this impact private equity fund advisors, other RIAs huh. potentially in the retirement space, right. as well as even hedge funds, because these new standards like I said, they were watered down from the proposal, but it's still a shift in the SEC's posture. So the application will impact all of those folks. Now, what that means from a business model perspective and from a fund construction perspective, we don't know exactly, but there's going to be the expectation that there's the annual audit for each RAA and that there's going to be those standardized disclosures on a quarterly basis of performance fees and expenses. And I think importantly, on things like expenses, there's going to be a real deep dive into where that's going, what that's um, being used for. Yeah. So increased compliance costs, audit inherently going from, I mean, you're, you're honestly, you're also just talking about the actual impact of moving from a, maybe, maybe we don't want to call it a checkbox, like a walk in the door and sign the paper audit, but like you're talking about taking, going zero to a hundred real yeah. quick on the audit side. You're talking about making it real. Be registered audit. And, you know, again, I think that there's going to be a real reckoning when RIAs and advisors and fund managers in the space have been operating without this type of regime for a while. Yeah. And now to see this real shift because, you know, we deal in a world uh, just in general in policy where a lot of entities are regulated and it's about ratcheting up those regulations. Venture is regulated. And I think it's a misnomer not to be, but this is a shift in how it's going to be regulated more so than just ratcheting up how it currently is regulated through like a capital raising for, uh, mechanism. Now let's take a moment to talk about our exclusive sponsor, FS Vector. Relationships, relationships, one more time, relationships. One of the hardest parts of building a meaningful company in the world of finance is understanding what's actually happening in Washington with agencies, the administration, everything going on on Capitol Hill. Who do you actually go to for what? In the world of government in general, it is just confusing. We may want to think we're disconnected from the world of politics, building companies, but if we've seen anything this year, it's that we're not. We are very tied to it. The ability to pick up the phone and get an opinion from a decision maker in this world, in the world of politics, is worth its weight in gold. Those aren't calls just anyone can make. This is why I recommend FS Vector. 
Those are the relationships they have. They have partners and senior advisors that have been cultivating those relationships for decades. Some of them have even been on the show. You may know John Betchia. You may know Amy Friend. You may know folks like that. They've been around. They've started building those relationships before they needed them, which is exactly what I recommend anyone do with their government affairs slash policy strategy. Don't wait until it's too late. Get advisors good ones even, good ones especially, only good ones, and the good ones are at FS Vector. Reach out to FS Vector, go into that contact us, and write in all caps at the top of the form, Zach sent me. FSVector.com and tell him Zach sent you. Yeah, one of the other things I'm hearing from you a lot here is, like, you'll answer a question and then you'll get to the end of it and you'll be like, and I'm not sure about how that fits, or like, you know, some version of like, and I'm not sure about X, Y, Z. Like, it seems like, and that's not a lack of reading. <laughs> it's not a lack of preparation. I know. How much is the uncertainty, the fear, and how much, or like the, like, what is the grand plan here? I'm just trying to read the tea leaves of kind of these things versus like what, like what you have been able to see versus what you are worried that you haven't seen yet, I guess, is kind of. So it's it's a great point. And I think. There is some uncertainty where I get most concerned is we see this in the financial services world broadly in the banking world. Regulation can create appropriate safeguards, but can also create moats. Oh, yeah. So major funds and advisors will figure out a way to comply. Those that it raises substantial costs for or actually prohibits, not prohibits, but makes it very difficult for them to raise capital from those credible LPs that then attract the other checks. What does it look like for them? And then what is that knock on effect for the ecosystem? So that's one of the things I worry about. The other thing I worry about is that second point of we're not sure how it all fits together is we talk about these rules and the SEC is proposing a lot of these rules as if they are one-off rules, right? but they are in fact remapping a lot of the private market ecosystem. And so something that you just talked about and this is still very nascent, but on the robo-advisory pieces, we are seeing, and everybody's talking about it, the major influx in artificial intelligence and what that's doing to enable not only efficiencies and back office work for any type of company, but potentially marketing and engagement with customers or actual investment decisions. The SEC also recently put out a proposal on how they think about AI in that space. How does that fit there? How does a recent custody proposal of how you custody private assets and do you need a qualified custodian and how is that audited? How is that valued? How is that fitting into the private fund advisor role? And we're seeing all these interlocking rules, but still being assessed in a vacuum. And those are just the ones that are out there already. When you look at the SEC's forward-looking agenda, they put out each year what's called the Reg Flex agenda as to the things that they plan to look into. And there are other things on that agenda that would actually get at raising thresholds for accredited investor qualification. So making it harder for those folks to qualify, not easier, as we discussed earlier. They want to change things around Regulation D, which is the primary mechanism through which private companies and funds raise capital. If you've raised money in private markets in the past 10 years, you probably did throw, did so through Regulation D. They want to increase compliance and burdens on that. So of the things that we know are out there, there's still a lot of uncertainty as to how they actually interact and what that means for an operator. 
And then there's also things on the agenda that we could see continue to raise barrier for private markets and ultimately increase burdens on those operators. Do you know uh, the company Mercury? Yeah. Their CEO, I I had a conversation with him this morning just about like Money 2020 stuff. It was totally separate, but because I was on the phone with him this morning, I've been thinking about him during portions of this conversation. And he's, he kind of like feels like the person, right? Like immigrant, like he's kind of the person we're talking about in a lot of ways. I don't, I don't know his whole story, but I don't think he came from much and built Mercury, which, you know, like not alone with a team, but, and then started investing. And I just think about like putting some of those, how different the world, I mean, it's like, you know, the butterfly effect thing. Right. And then if you start thinking about regulation and the butterfly effect, the world starts getting really fucking scary, really fast, I think. And you think of like the idea of the value that is accrued into a mods bank account, which is not, which I think is like a good thing for the world. Like I think a mod having money is a better thing than, I don't know, like I think Patrick Collison being rich is good, but I think a mod being rich is better than Patrick Collison having another 10 million or something, you know, whatever. It seems like the idea that we are getting in the way of people even more so like pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps is really just kind of depressing. Like, I mean, I know that's the whole conversation we've been having, but like, I just want to address the elephant in the room, I guess, of just like, it's kind of sad. Like, it feels like we're working so damn hard here and it feels like we're fighting it. It's the way I feel about crypto too, honestly, is like, I don't think that everything in crypto is great, but I do think that like an active, an active move to like, kill all of it will i mean it's the baby of the bathwater thing i guess and Mm -hmm. it's just a little it's a little saddening there's no question it's just like fuck anthony Uh, (laughs) it is frustrating and it is problematic but that's also why i do this job and before we got on this i introduced you my team who is just an absolute engine and that's why carta invests in this as I mentioned, private fund advisor in its proposed form was dramatically worse. We engaged, and not just Carta, so many people in the ecosystem yeah. engaged. Who are the others that engage on? Is that like a, I don't know if GoFundMe has a big team in this world, but I imagine they care about shit like that. Like who is engaging? The so, other venture firms? Um, there are other venture firms that are for sure engaged on this. Um, I, without their permission, I want to call them out by name. Yeah. There are other trade associations. As I mentioned, this affects the hedge fund world, the private uh, private equity world and venture world. We're actually seeing them launch a lawsuit because they still think this is overreach. And so, as I mentioned, Carta's got strong views. We really work hard to understand what's going to move the needle for our customers and the ecosystem, but we work collaboratively with other folks that share and align around our mission. And so this is all the more reason why we need to stay engaged, where we were able to soften this and there's still a reason why we want to fight back against it. Four years ago, when I first joined, we were able to move a credit investor in the right direction. It potentially moves in the wrong direction now. But if we engage, we might be able to prevent the SEC from doing that. And simultaneous to that, we've also got bills moving through the House of Representatives that are expanding on ramps for a credit investor, that are making it easier for funds to support other emerging fund managers. And are those going to be at the president's desk on Friday? Absolutely not. It's a long-term engagement. But Carta's CEO testifies in front of Congress. We write comment letters. We meet with lawmakers and regulators because without voicing what those consequences and impacts look like, it does turn into not only a depressing reality, but the outcomes are problematic versus when you step up and engage, you can shape it. And we're playing some defense now, but there's also offensive opportunities. And that's why we do what we're doing. 
uh, because I fundamentally not only love policy and believe it's important, but if we support this sector of the economy, that's the innovation engine that helps economic opportunity for so many people, ownership for so many people, and the products of services that we rely on today that weren't even in existence five or six years ago, much less 10 or 20, that's what this ecosystem does. That's why it's important we show up and engage. Yeah, I love it. That's what I need. I fucking, I needed that. Yeah. I needed that to bring me back in. Yeah. I needed, needed some energy. I was getting sad. What do those conversations look like? And what, what takeaways can you share with other people that want to like engage in those conversations? Because I think the industry as a whole, like Money 2020 this year, we have, I think, more Washington regulation policy oriented content than ever. We have more keynotes that are in that direction than that. Like this is, I think, and granted, I had a lot to do with that, I guess, but I do think it's not just my nerdiness and Rachel Morrissey on the content team's nerdiness. It's like, this is the direction the industry is focused right now. To your, to your earlier comments, I'm really glad we are seeing more focus on this. Mm -hmm. Carta was one, and again, I give credit to Carta, not me, was one of the early firms that invested in a policy shop. And as a result, we've been able to build a lot of infrastructure, not only as Carta, but within this broader coalition of interested parties. But seeing how much FTC rulemakings, SEC rulemakings, Treasury involvement, and that's just at the federal level, New York DFS, California regulators, so much of policies infrastructure, people need to pay attention. I think to get to your core comment, though, it seems not only removed from daily life, but even when it starts encroaching, it still seems so esoteric, scary, and inaccessible. It is not. One, there are a lot of resources out there. Carta, almost everything we do, we put out for public. Uh, we, we want reactions to it. We want people to know what we're doing. And again, we oftentimes engage coalition stakeholders. Every Friday, we put out a policy newsletter kind of talking through oh, things that really? are happening, okay. analysis of it. How do people sign up? This is the stuff I need to know. So um, there's a Carta Policy Desk. Um, so if you go to Carta.com, Policy Desk, um, there's not only the material we put out every week, as well as deep dives in certain areas like private fund advisor yeah. and other aspects. Um, but then there's the newsletter we send out every Friday. But I think even beyond education, what people don't realize is policymakers want to know what this means to their day-to-day -day life. I can get up there and with my team recite chapter and verse of this regulation and yeah. pontificate as to what it's going to look like. Yeah. But what really resonates is when we bring a first-time fund manager up and he or she tells their story as to this was the hurdle I had to overcome to raise money, or this was the hurdle I had to overcome to build mercury, or this is what made it possible. And now this rule would make it harder or impossible to do. Yeah. You humanize you it. Yeah. You don't need to know every aspect of regulation. And to the extent that you do have questions, again, we're there. Other people have resources, but engage with your policymakers on a local level, work with folks like us on a federal level. Your stories are more powerful because A, they're real. You're the ones actually building out there, but it's not about how a specific reg is cited. It's what it means to your day-to-day -day life. So don't feel like you don't have a role, your role is actually even bigger than mine. So taking that a step further, I mean, it sounds like I've always wondered, like if I was starting the company, if I would, if I would do all of these things that you're supposed to do, like I've had people say that you should reach out to, you know, if you're, if you're in a highly regulated space, you should reach out to like, you know, the proper regulators. And even before you need mm -hmm. to have a conversation with them, start building the relationship. 
Is that true? Like, should you reach out and just say, hey, we exist. We have no reason to talk to you yet, but we exist. And we hope that one day we will have a reason to talk to you. Like, is that actually a thing? It really depends. Um, I wish there were an easy answer. And we spend a lot of time. We do work with companies on these types of questions. And it's not like a formal service, but like, again, we serve Carta and their customer base as much as we can. And I think for some folks, candidly, companies want to be able to operate in those ambiguous spaces and other companies know full well, they're going to be right in the bullseye of regulation. Yeah. And I think understanding what the regulatory apparatus that you are subject to or might be subject to is super important and not enough people figure it out until it's too late. And then from there, you need to make those decisions as to does your practice conform? Is it a positive story to tell? Or is it something that there's still enough murkiness that you should be talking? And I don't think the first call is to regulator, but to your law firm partner or a carta to talk through what that looks like. But just as an aside, and I won't give the company's name, I recently was contacted by a company and their business practice was something they were very proud of. Their customer base was very involved and they were in the housing, housing space, but they had a peer out there that was undertaking very problematic practices. Sure. But their peer was massive. It was a private equity-backed company. That practice ended up coming under such scrutiny that legislators in major states started banning it. This company had to wind itself down and pivot to a completely different Uh. business model. And again, this guy had customers willing to call on his behalf because he treated it differently than this other company. Yeah. And I just, I can still hear him say, I wish I had met you earlier. And it's not to say Carta or I could have saved him. But by the time he was engaging to tell his story, it was too late. And so not only is it, what does this mean from your regulatory apparatus that applies to you, but like how you think about other players in the space and is this a differentiator in a way that you need to be the one telling your story? Yeah. I mean, I think about like the, I don't, I think your world is busy enough and wild enough that I don't know if you followed like the the solo funds saga over the mm-hmm. last yeah. few, you have a little yeah. bit. I mean, that's that kind of comes to mind. You know, I mean, I think, I don't know every inner working of that, but I do know I've met both of those founders and there's good fucking hearts there. Like they are doing, they're not killing themselves to try and help people, you know, borrow a hundred dollars and then take 25 cents of it, you know, off of a tip and trying to invent an entirely new business model on tipping. Well, you know, it exists elsewhere, but like, I really think that in that space that they did a lot of pioneering and it, like, it, I don't think they engaged at the right time and I don't think they engaged early enough. And I think that as a result, it's like, oh, you're a payday lender, you're done, you know? And it's, I don't actually don't know where it's at right now, um, but I don't think it's moving up into the right, at least yeah. not in the policy space, you know? I mean, it's not something that's like being welcomed by regulators. And I do wonder, like, you know, had they engaged earlier and educated lawmakers and kind of worked together more, you know, could we have a new version of a payday loan that's not a terrible thing for the world? I don't know. And, you know, I'm not going to be up here to defend payday lenders, but there's a reason. Oh, fucking me neither, for the record. (laughs) Like, I'm from Kansas City, dude. Fuck payday lenders. But yes, I mean, yeah. But to your point, the, the ability to tell your story is so important. And for the most part, people are building products and companies that they're proud of and they want to tell their story. And I think the other important piece, and this is now like third or fourth level stuff is like, again, figuring out what your regulatory apparatus looks like. Are you in it? Are you out? Is there ambiguity? Who are the partners that you might want to talk to for advice and helping on that? And then how you tell your story. 
But then increasingly, there's people that can be allies. Just because you're talking to a policymaker doesn't mean you're talking to the wrong policymaker. There are folks that you want to tell your story to, and they can help you then think through what this might look like as you're engaging with other policymakers. Do you want to start with the antagonist first? Absolutely not. So there's even ways to do it if you're going to go down that path. And what I worry about is people keep their head in the sand or try and avoid it because it's scary, it's inaccessible, or they worry it's going to be more harm than good. Yeah. And that might be the case, but that should be an affirmative decision, not one that's made because you want to ignore it. And if you make that affirmative decision, God bless, but there is a world in which the appropriate decision is engagement. And then how do we help engage in a smart and effective way? Yeah. It also sounds like one of the things you definitely want to make sure of is that you have thought through and actually do understand the story you want to tell before yeah. you go start telling it. Like you don't want to develop, you don't want to go do stand up and like iterate on stage. You're like, oh, let's yeah, let's work this out in front of a congressman. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you want to do that. But hundred um, percent. But as I said, like your stories are so impactful and it's specifically when you tether them to this is how a regulation's helping me or this is how a regulation's hurting me because that's going to inform the policymaker in a real world way because they're understanding what's at stake here. What have we not covered that I don't know this subject well enough to ask you the question about that we definitely should cover? Are there any pieces of that? I think on the policy side, I would just reiterate, it's very much an infrastructure that affects everybody's day-to-day, whether you realize it or not. For the most part, engagement is easier than you might think it is. Um, I get that you're building a company, you're building a fund. You're is it an email? I mean, is that how easy, like, what is, what are we talking about? It's an email um, to the extent you have time showing up at a town hall occasionally, but it's an email. It's anybody can write an SEC comment letter and they all don't have to be footnoted by, you know, a top five law firm. I didn't know that. I'm not going to lie. I had absolutely no, I mean, just, you can just write an SEC comment letter. You can write an SEC comment letter. There are offices at the SEC and in many of the regulators that are investor advocates or small business advocates. And more often than not, they are staffed and they have advisory committees by other peers that are asset managers or founders that are trying to help people engage. And so there's a lot of on-ramps there. And I bring this up again to say, whether it's tax, whether it's capital formation, whether it's how data is treated, used, everything is starting to be watched and we're seeing a shift here. Engagement matters. And to your point, we're at a, I think we're at a little bit of a pivot here. And the country's been at these pivotal moments before in plenty of areas. And I've always, when you look back over our history, I always talk about like, we've been through two world wars, a civil war, great depression, great recession. And we emerge not because we're entitled, but because people stepped up and engaged. And I would not make what we're going through right now on an SEC rulemaking analogous to any of those types of things. But what is true is engagement matters. And it's not just folks sitting out here in Washington, D.C. It's people building in Kansas City. It's people building in Atlanta. And it's, yes, of course, people building in San Francisco, New York, but across the country. I fucking love that and could not agree more. Actually, it's funny. I'm going to see um, going to see Joanne Barefoot after Mm -hmm. this. And she was she was kind of the one that helped me understand. So I like, I started my, I started my fintech, whatever career or just career. And I haven't had a non-fintech career in, um, robo advising. Like I used to think that wealth management was like the thing, like nobody has retirement money. Like what the fuck are we doing? Why is everybody focused over here? There's no retirement. And then I was like, 
oh, I got into banking, right? And then I was like, oh, nobody has any money in their like savings account or their checking account. No fucking wonder nobody has any money in their, you know, in their retirement. And then I got into, um, got into more of the fintech side, like embedded finance stuff, realized that, you know, everybody's in debt and that's why nobody actually has any money. You know, you just kind of keep going through this Maslow's hierarchy sort of, or not even Maslow's hierarchy, but like, just you keep uncovering a layer of the onion that leads you to understand what really matters. And in my experience, I just kept pulling back layers of the onion and I'm 32. It's not like I'm done yet, but the only thing I can find at the core is policy. And the only thing I can find at the core is regulation. Like that is the seed of all of it. And I've just, I feel like I've been this like, I don't know, almost like bra burning, like liberal running around just like, why does no one have savings? Why does no, you know, and then I get to the end of it. And I'm like, oh, fuck, maybe I just need to put on a suit and go to Washington. Like, maybe that's where I actually make the difference. And I'm not doing that yet because yeah. I refuse to put on a suit. I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree with you completely. And I think it's something that I... W- it's something that I almost like if I had a TED talk or something like that, I would I would go around to colleges and just be like, consider policy and consider it early in your career, too, yeah. I think is the other thing is like I wish that I had done a couple of years and I think I'd be a very different person. But like in the FDIC or something like that, like you don't have like you don't have to learn from the school of hard knocks like yeah. the the, you know, going and doing the thing is also like highly respectable. And I think too many people are going to Facebook too quick these days. Yeah. And I, you know, everybody gets to make their own decision. I came to policy early in life and it was only supposed to be a couple of years. And then I was going to go off and do something more interesting. And I spent my life in it because I've realized not only how important it is, but I also love the opportunity to work on hard problems that aren't black and white. And there's so many interested parties bringing unique perspectives and oftentimes in different areas. And I think that also lends itself to, and you kind of reminded me of this when you talked about being a bra burning liberal (laughs) to us and to me, this isn't Republican or Democrat. It's how do we think about these issues and really bring to bear the data, the stories and the real world impact in ways that helps inform policymakers. And that's not about Republican or Democrat. And oftentimes it's not about like how we move a lever of bureaucracy. That's what gets hung up on oftentimes. But the more we can engage, the more we can really start moving these things through. And again, it's not going to happen overnight, but by engaging, we can, I think, and this is going to sound a little bit too like naive, but like that's how we create more equity owners, whether those are investors and employees. That's how we can get more fund managers raising capital that didn't go to Stanford Business School, but that grew up through the School of Hard Knocks, but they've got an idea or an investment thesis. And those are going to be the ones that scout the next founder that also didn't go to Stanford Business School, but that's sitting there in Kansas City or in Atlanta or Ohio or Detroit. And then that's the knock-on effect. And those folks are hopefully going to be engaged when they kind of get to that moment as well. But in the meantime, like we've got to be helping them get that opportunity in the first place. I love it. That's a great spot to end. Go engage with DC, go engage in your state, go engage in your capital, just go friggin' engage with policy oriented things, folks. I will put all of that, the newsletter, all that in the show notes. Anthony, thank you for the time, my friend. I've learned a ton. I really enjoyed it. Really appreciate the opportunity and uh, look forward to seeing you out here in DC more often. Yeah, we're going to make it happen more often. We'll do a check-in in a year or so and see how the SEC is doing. I would love it. All right. Thanks for listening. 
if you're still listening, you're probably reaching for your phone to pick your next podcast or switch to music or just call it a day because you can't believe how much valuable information you just took in. But before you pick that next thing, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, and all that jazz. Generally scream from the rafters about how much you love FinTech Family Hour. Thank you again to our sponsor, FS Vector. And until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, your costs low, and I love you all. Bye.